The following sermon is brought to you by Capital Community Church, located in Raleigh, North Carolina. Capital Community Church is a people awakened to a holy God. If you are searching for a new church home, or from out of town looking for a church to worship with, or simply seeking for answers, please join us for worship at 1045 a.m. every Sunday morning and 6 o'clock p.m. for our evening service. If you have any questions, please email us at info at We pray this sermon will help you grow deeper in your walk with Jesus Christ. Please take your copy of God's Word this morning in whatever form you have that and turn with me to the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew chapter 5. Let me just say what a tremendous privilege and honor it is to be with you once again. It's been several months since I was with you the last time, but it's so good to look out and see uh, so many familiar faces and so many new faces since I was here uh, our last time together. Matthew chapter 5, I would like to draw your attention uh, to verse 8. Let's actually go back and read the whole context of the Beatitudes of which we find ourselves, and then I want to focus your attention on verses 10 through 12. Verse 2, and he, being Jesus, opened and taught them, saying, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Father, we thank you this morning for your holy, inerrant, infallible word that causes us to fasten ourselves to the rock that is higher than ourselves the Lord Jesus Christ. And we pray now in these moments together that He would be our resident teacher and our resident pastor to shepherd our hearts and to open our minds For we pray this in His name and for His sake. Amen. My grandfather had quite an extensive Christian library. And after he died, when I was around 13 or so years old, a very, very young man who felt as if he had been called to preach, 
at 13 years old. After he died, my grandmother invited me to take as many books as I wanted from his library. Of course, you never say that to someone who feels as if they are a preacher because you want them all. As I began to rummage through his library, it became quite obvious to me, an eminently godly man, that he desired in his reading to fill himself with soul-stirring theology and church history. One small volume that I came across was a book entitled Fox's Book of Martyrs. It was a paperback copy with a purple cover. In fact, I still have the book. It was tattered, it was worn, it was dog-eared from its obvious use through the years. First published in 1563, the author, John Fox, chronicled the vivid and horrific suffering endured by the English and Scottish reformers during the Protestant Reformation for preaching the truth of the gospel of Christ. Filled with detailed illustrations of torture, John Fox fostered within me through these various stories a love not only for this time period in particular in church history, but also a love for the persecuted church throughout the world even today. Fox tells the story of one man by the name of John Hooper. John Hooper. Born in 1495 in Somerset, England, Hooper was educated at Cambridge, where a lot of the Scottish and Protestant English reformers themselves were educated, but he spent his early ministry traveling throughout France and Switzerland, befriending Protestant reformers who instilled within him a great zeal for the truth of the Word of God, a zeal that Hooper would bring back to his native England and begin preaching these truths and the doctrines of the Protestant Reformation as he became the Bishop of Gloucestershire and then the Bishop of Worcester. However, in the year 1553, King Edward VI died. And a very wicked, evil woman by the name of Mary I, who history will know her as Bloody Mary, ascended the throne. She immediately began to usher into the country Roman Catholicism ridding every pulpit and every church of what was known as Protestant heresies. John Hooper was immediately arrested and imprisoned in the Tower of London. He was brought numerous times before councils and assembled elders of the Roman Catholic Church asking him, begging him, requesting him to recant all of his Protestant heresies. These heresies that we know and celebrate today as the doctrines of justification by faith alone and sola fide and sola Christus and sola Deo Gloria. Every single time, Hooper refused to recant. And then on February the 9th, 1555, Hooper was led 
to his place of execution in Gloucestershire. He was tied to a wooden stake and he was lit on fire. Writing of these events, John Fox tells us that as Hooper was escorted to the stake, that he implored the crowds of people that were gathered on this day to witness this spectacle. He implored them to recite with him the Lord's Prayer. Weeping and sobbing washed over the crowds of people. And when Hooper reached the place of his execution, an iron hoop was placed around his chest to affix him to the stake upon which he was to burn. As the kindling and the wood was placed around the prior, he caught two bundles in his hands and he kissed them and he placed one under each arm. This cold morning in England and the blustery wind was not conducive for a fire. And as the fires was lit, the fire barely touched his body, only burning his hair. Fox writes, in the time of which fire, even at the first flame, he, being Hooper, prayed, saying mildly and not very loud, but as one without pain, O oh, Jesus, Son of David, have mercy upon me and receive my soul. Fox says, after the second fire had went out, he wiped both of his eyes with his hands, and beholding the people, Hooper said with an indifferent loud voice, for God's love, good people, give me more fire. A third fire was lit. And little by little, he burned. One finger and then the next, one arm, and then the next. And his final words from the flame were, Lord Jesus, have mercy upon me. Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Friends, countless stories like this can be recited throughout church history and even today in certain places around the world in which we live. However, as horrifying as these stories are to hear and to read for ourselves, this shouldn't really surprise us at all. In the conclusion to his beatitude statements in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus pronounces in verse 10, divine blessing upon those who suffer persecution. Now, the beatitudes, which we all know so very well, are descriptions or characteristics, as it were, of a true believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, one who, that is, is walking faithfully before the Lord, desiring with their inmost being and all of their heart to be conformed by the Spirit into the image of the Lord Jesus Christ. But when we come to verse 10, we think, don't we, that this seems quite, I don't know, out of place. Why would Jesus bless persecution? Well, to help us to understand here the context and the importance of Jesus' words in Matthew 5, we need to turn just for a moment to Paul's words in 2 Timothy chapter 3. So if you'll keep your finger here in Matthew 5, we'll return to it in just a moment, and I want to show you a couple of verses in 2 Timothy chapter 3. 
particularly drawing your attention this morning to 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 12. We remember Paul's warning to Timothy and subsequently all believers who would read these verses. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 12. Listen to what Paul says. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. You see, Paul is deeply persuaded that there will be an expected clash between those who live righteous and godly lives and those who revel in and celebrate their ungodliness. That is, to put it very simple for you, there is an inevitable tension here between light and darkness. And we see that here in 2 Timothy chapter 3. Notice verse 2, Paul outlines the godlessness of this present age. For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. Wow. Paul's words are as if he was reading the newspapers and tuning in to the local stations of our televisions today. Though written 2,000 years ago, I don't believe in Scripture there is written a better characterization of the current world and the current culture in which we are living. But then in verse 10, Paul turns to Timothy and he says, notice the words, you, however, you, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct. My aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my, notice, persecutions. Do you see it? And sufferings that have happened to me at Antioch and Iconium and Lystra, which persecutions I endured, yet from them all the Lord rescued me, indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. So Paul shares with us and with Timothy his experiences of his own persecution and suffering that he endured at Antioch and Iconium and Lystra. Now the word persecutions is from the Greek verb from which we derive the term to put to flight, to put to flight. And if you want to see this phrase in all of its magnificent description, all you have to do is read the book of Acts and Paul's journeys throughout the Mediterranean world. And in one city he would go and he would be stoned. In another city he would go and he would be put to prison. And then he would be run out of that city. And then another city he would go, he would stand before the elders and the Jewish leaders and the pagan worshipers. And Paul refused every single time to compromise or cease proclaiming the exclusivity of the gospel of the Lord Jesus. Jesus Christ, and he was driven from towns, he was beaten, he was imprisoned, he was whipped, and he was stoned. All who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. And so lest we as the church today think that somehow we're immune or exempt from these persecutions and sufferings, Paul reminds us, notice the word, all. 
And so that causes us to remember that the reason for such hatred from the world in which we live against the church is because those believers that make up the bride of Christ desire to live a godly life. Let me remind you of Jesus' words to us in John chapter 15, beginning in verse 18. If the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name because they do not know him who sent me. And so, friends, we have to understand every faithful believer will expect, should expect, persecution. Not that every believer will be tortured and imprisoned and asked to recant or even burned, but at one point or another, you will experience opposition from the world in which we live. Now let me ask you this morning, what does that mean for the church? Well, it means for the church that the church is composed of those individuals that the world hates. You see, there may be an outward facade of friendliness and desire for cooperation, but in the recesses of the heart of the ungodly, there is a vehement hatred for the things of God and the good news of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that brings us back to the context, doesn't it, of Matthew chapter 5. And I want to give you this morning in our time together three very simple thoughts to hang our study on. Very three simple things that you can jot down or you can remember. And the first that I would like you to see in verse 10 is the source of persecution. And we come back to the text that is open before us and Jesus is blessing on those who are persecuted. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Why will his hearers face persecution? Because they exhibit the godly characteristics of all the previous Beatitudes. That is, because they live holy lives. Separate lives. Lives that are set apart for Christ. Isn't that what Paul had in mind when he told Timothy, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted? Perhaps this is what Paul had in mind. Here was Jesus' words in the Beatitudes when he said that to Timothy. Jesus defines persecution here as arising from two sources. First, true disciples of Christ are persecuted, notice verse 10, for righteousness. Now, commentators like to divide the Beatitudes up into various sections, but I agree with those who would divide the Beatitudes into two groups of four, with each group ending with the word righteousness. And the first group of Beatitudes ends for us in Matthew 5, verse 6. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for what? Righteousness. And the second group ends in verse 10. Blessed are those who are persecuted for what? 
righteousness. Now, the three Beatitudes that conclude with a hunger for righteousness are descriptions of a type of emptiness. Verse 3, those who are poor in spirit. Verse 4, those who mourn over their sin. Verse 5, those who are meek and gentle. And all those who have this type of emptiness within them are filled with a hunger and thirst for righteousness. And this emptiness and need are fulfilled in the form of verse 7, mercy, verse 8, purity, and verse 9, peacemaking. And so the result of this type of righteousness, my friends, the result of this type of living, the result of this type of godly lifestyle of mercy, purity, and peacemaking is inevitable persecution. Jesus is making clear that the righteousness exhibited in a believer's life through these godly characteristics of mercy and purity and peacemaking provokes violence within those who do not know Christ. You see, the ungodly witness the church's righteousness and they see such holiness as a condemnation on their own unrighteous behavior. You question what I'm saying? Go out in the world and talk for two minutes on the purity of marriage between a man and a woman. Go out for five minutes. You may not even reach five minutes in a local coffee shop and talk about the purity that is present within a man being a man and a woman being a woman and fulfilling their godly roles. In response, they lash out in ridicule. They malign the church through severe forms of persecution and suffering to the point that everything we as the church say in the moment of which we live is considered by the world as nothing more than hate speech because they see the godliness and holiness exhibited in our righteousness as a condemnation on their own unrighteousness. And so Jesus is saying, you will be persecuted because you desire to live a holy life separate from this world. Because you mourn over your sin, because you exhibit the characteristics of Meekness and gentleness and mercy and purity and peacemaking, all godly things, all right things. Now, secondly, true disciples, notice verse 11. True disciples of Christ are persecuted on my account. That's Jesus speaking there. On Jesus' account. Or some translations will say, because of me. Well, this reminds us, doesn't it, of Jesus' words in Matthew chapter 10, verse 22. You will be hated for my name's sake. Well, what name, we might ask? What particular name is Jesus referring to here? Well, it's not the name Jesus Because throughout history, many people have been called Jesus. No, Jesus is highlighting for here, here for us, a particular name. That is, a Christological title that when identified with, causes persecution and ridicule. Well, what is that Christological title that incites violence within the world against the church? Well, I think he gives us that name in Luke chapter 6, verse 2. 
And that title is Son of Man. Son of Man. And it may be that that particular title of Christ instigates hostility within unbelievers. Now, why would it do that? Well, because this specific title identifies the Lord Jesus Christ as a king of divine heavenly origin who will reign over a universal and eternal kingdom and who is worthy of all worship of all peoples. Let me give you a few verses. In Matthew 13, 41... It will be the Son of Man who will send His angels and they will gather out His kingdom, all causes of sin and lawbreakers. In Matthew 16, 27, it will be the Son of Man who is going to come with His angels in the glory of His Father and He will repay each person according to what He has done. In Matthew 16, 28, it will be the Son of Man that we will see coming in His kingdom. In Matthew 19, 28, it will be the Son of Man who will sit on His glorious throne. This title was considered blasphemous and ultimately, friends, led to and proved to be the very key that led to the final condemnation and crucifixion of the Lord Jesus Christ. Before the high priest Caiaphas and the religious council that were gathered together there, the high priest asked Jesus, I adjure you by the living God, Matthew 26, tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. Jesus said to him, you have said so, but I tell you, that from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming in the clouds of heaven. And my friends, that statement by Jesus caused the high priest to stand up and he becomes so angry that it said he tore his robes and said he has uttered blasphemy. You see, beloved, the world is perfectly agreeable when we identify Jesus as a moral teacher. The world is perfectly agreeable when we identify Jesus as a motivational figure or a great leader to be emulated. But when the church begins to attribute divine authority, universal kingship, and cosmic rule to Jesus, the world loses its mind. In verse 11, Jesus is looking out over the crowd, and he's saying, when you identify with me, And when you attribute kingship and divine rule and sovereign control to me, you will face relentless opposition, anger, and persecution from believers who seek to oppose such rule over their own lives. Because you see, friends... Identification with Jesus at this very juncture gives our righteousness its own distinctive character. On the Lord's Day, we don't come in here patting each other on the back, congratulating each other on being masters of the universe. No. We come as humble babes and humble sheep, recognizing that all of our worship and all of our praise is exclusively directed to none other than the glory and the beauty of the Lord Jesus Christ.
who is soon returning and coming in the power and the glory of his Father to judge the world. And when we do that every single Lord's Day, the world loses its mind. And so we are persecuted because of righteousness. And we're persecuted because we identify with Jesus as our King. And Jesus proceeds in verse 11 for the expressions of persecution. That was the source of persecution. Well, here are the expressions of persecution. Three simple expressions. First, he says, they will revile you. Well, reviling is the picture of someone mocking and verbally shaming you. We see this of believers all the time. Turn on the television for five minutes and they can't say three words without mocking a believer in Christ. They pronounce over you humiliating and discrediting words. We all know people like these in the community of our local church that despises the very ground that you stand on and the message preached every Lord's Day from the pulpit They roam about in the community mocking the church and those who make up their body. They revile you. Secondly, the word persecute, as we've already seen, means to put to flight, to run after, to pursue, to run out. Jesus knows that the very disciples of which he is speaking to here during the Sermon on the Mount are going to go into the surrounding villages and towns. And what does he tell them? He says, you're going to be run out of town, but go preach anyway. You're going to be run out of town. Matthew 10, 23, when they persecute you in one town, flee to the next. Those who are incensed by the gospel message may seek to drive the pastor out of town. Those who are enraged with the church's evangelistic efforts may seek to drive you out of town proclaiming hate speech and a violation of privacy. All manner of things will be invented to pursue you, to run after you, or to even run you out of town. But regardless, Jesus says, the church must be a beacon of gospel light within the community seeking its good by proclaiming the saving message of Jesus Christ regardless of what people say and do. They'll revile you. Well, they're going to persecute you. Verse 11 states, Thirdly, they will utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. They'll raise false allegations against them that have no no basis in reality, but are actually imaginary lies. Well, they did this to our Lord, didn't they? Matthew 12, the Pharisees said of Jesus, it's only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this man casts out demons. They're accusing Jesus of being the very pinnacle of evil, falsely accusing him of casting demons out in the name of hell. There's no depth to their deceptions of lies, their false accusations, the mockery invented to persecute those within the church. You see, friends, a church that is devoted to righteousness, godliness, and the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ will be persecuted and reviled because that righteousness and godliness and the gospel comes as an indictment upon their own sinful lifestyle. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed. Well, if the text ended in verse 11, it would be easy to despair 
But Jesus offers for us here one final exhortation. And it's quite odd. Rejoice and be glad. For your reward is great in heaven. Now we might think that Jesus is being, I don't know, perhaps a bit insensitive here. Like the insensitive pastor sitting at the dead side at the bedside of a dying saint and that pastor looks up to his family and says, well, you know, all things work together for good. But that's not what Jesus is saying here. The Lord Jesus, the King of glory, is looking out over this crowd, many of whom will face martyrdom because of their identification with him. And he's saying, regardless of what you suffer on my account, I can assure you without any shadow of a doubt that your reward in heaven will far more than compensate you for any suffering and persecution you have endured here in my name. And I can say that because I've seen it and I'm creating it for you. This is what we call a paradoxical mystery. Rejoice while suffering? Be, be glad amid ridicule? What, what are you saying, Jesus? Paul reminds the church of this glorious truth in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 17 to 18. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are trans not to the things that are transient, but to the things that are eternal. You see, our rejoicing and gladness proceed from faith in the unseen realm of eternity. We're not playing the short game here. This isn't a sprint. No, this is a long endurance race to the end. And then when the end comes... For us as believers, it's only the beginning. The same faith that transforms us from one degree of glory to the next. The same faith that gives our righteousness its unique character. The same faith that Jesus was able to stare at his persecutors in the face and say, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. These persecutions, these sufferings are preparing for us and bringing about in us an eternal weight of glory. Be glad. It means to be in an utter state of happiness. Oh, should we not be the happiest people in the world? So joyful that it's contagious. Look at those fools over there in that building worshiping a king that they can't see. There's something to that joy. There's something unique about that joy. And then he says rejoice. This goes even deeper. This is the type of joy that doesn't arrive later after the words cease to hurt. Or the whipping on our backs ceases to sting. No, this is the type of joy that rejoices when you're being called names. When, like John Hooper, you're being led to the stake. 
when the fires are lit. This is the joy that the apostles themselves expressed in Acts chapter 5. And when they they had called the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus, and they let them go. Then they left the presence of the council, their clothes bloody because of the beating, their backs stinging because of the whiplashes, and blood is dripping from their backs, and their eyes are bruised, and they have lacerations on their faces. They left the presence of the council rejoicing that they had been counted worthy to suffer for his name. Now, what should be some characteristics of those who rejoice in suffering? Let me give you just a few things very quickly in closing as you jot these down. We should identify us with those who even in the midst of persecution are enduring that we rejoice. Well, we should rejoice in the privilege of suffering for Christ. We should rejoice in the privilege of suffering for Christ. Philippians chapter 1 verse 29, for it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ not only to believe in him but also also to suffer for him. Beloved, this is a gift. Rejoice in the privilege. We should also secondly rejoice in the hope of eternal reward. Matthew 5 verse 12, rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. Thirdly, we rejoice in the opportunity to testify to the truth. We rejoice in the opportunity to testify for the truth. 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 14 and 15. But if, even if you should suffer for what is right, Peter says you're blessed. Peter says, do not fear their threats, do not be frightened, but in your hearts revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you. Number four, rejoice in the fellowship of Christ's sufferings. Oh, we get to join Christ in his own sufferings. Philippians chapter 3, verse 10. I want you to know Christ, yes, to know the power of His resurrection and participation in His sufferings, becoming like Him in His death. You see, persecution leads to your holiness. Persecution is part of sanctification, of making you more and more like Christ by identifying in the fellowship of His sufferings. And then, number five, rejoice in the opportunity to identify with Christ. And this brings us to Matthew five twelve. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Let me remind you of Hebrews chapter 12, that great chapter. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside and cast off the things that hinder us and the sin that so easily entangles, and let us run with perseverance the race marked for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the perfecter of our faith, for the joy that was set before Him endured the cross despising the shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Hebrews 11 talks about those who suffered mocking and flogging, those who were in chains, those who were imprisoned, they were stoned, sawn in two, killed with the sword, went about in sheepskins, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, men of whom the world was not worthy. What is the reward? Oh, the reward 
is standing before the Lord Jesus Christ on that final day and hearing Him say, Well done, thou good and faithful servant. Now enter into the joy of the Lord. Three weeks before his martyrdom, John Hooper wrote a letter to some friends. And this is what he wrote from prison, knowing that he would be burned in three weeks. You must now turn all your thought from the peril you see and mark the joy that follows that peril. Either victory in this world over your enemies or else a surrender of this life to inherit the everlasting kingdom. He says, beware. Beware of beholding too much the joy or misery of this world. For the consideration and too earnest love or fear of either of them draws us from God. There is nothing under God but may be kept so that God being above all things we have, be not lost. Nothing we have, nothing we can give is worth losing God Himself. church must be known as those who are looking forward to the city whose designer and builder is God. Hear, beloved, today the words of the prophets. Abuse suffered for Christ is greater wealth than all the treasures of Egypt. For we Look to the reward. And Father, indeed, we do look to this reward today. By your grace, through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, grant it to us that we may live holy lives for this sake and for this purpose. We pray in his name and for his sake. Thanks for listening. For more sermons, information, and events, check out our website at capitalcommunitychurch.com.